Welcome back to another episode of Empire. On today's weekly recap, we are joined by Mr. Santiago Roel Santos, per usual. If you missed the last two episodes, first off, shame on you. Second off, you missed a big announcement. Santiago has officially joined Empire as the co-host. We'll be running two episodes a week. The first is an interview episode. The second is the weekly roundup. So, Santiago, GM, sir. GM, sir. How's it going? It's going well. I think this is officially... Uh, the earliest podcast episode I've ever recorded. So hats off to you for uh, getting my getting my ass to wake up early. Well, there's been a lot going on in crypto, so I think this is going to be a pretty exciting, a lot to cover. So hopefully we get through most of it. Great. Let's get into the big one. Sequoia Capital, crypto rebrand. This completely blew my mind. One of the biggest VCs of all time, as blue chip, as professional as it gets, uh, just to like set the stage for folks who might not know Sequoia, uh, founded by Don Valentin in 1972, widely regarded with basically uh, creating the venture capital industry as we know it. Uh, when we hear names like Andreessen Horowitz, amazing venture firms, they've only been around for 10, 15 years. Sequoia has been around for 50 years. Uh, they've invested in over a thousand companies, Apple, Google, Oracle, GitHub, PayPal, LinkedIn, Stripe, YouTube, Instagram, Yahoo, Cisco. The list goes on and on. How crazy was this, Santiago? Well, it's wild. I mean, I think it's uh, it's one of the, perhaps in my mind, the best venture capital firm, the most noticeable one. And they made a big splash into the space. Funny story. So I pitched Sequoia to get into crypto way back in 2015 or 14. Uh, and they said, you know, like, no, just continue investing in software. Like, this is... This sort of laughed me out of the room. Uh, and they NFT'd their, their YouTube memo, I think, which was a pretty remarkable kind of step. Um, and and in many ways, it, legitim- it continues to legitimize the asset class. And so it's it's quite positive. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what they, what they do. I think this is bigger than people realize, uh, actually, for one reason. Uh, if you remember back when Paul Tudor Jones came out and publicly declared Bitcoin to be the fastest horse in the race, uh, that was... You know, obviously got a lot of hype on Twitter and things like that, but actually that was one of the biggest moments in Bitcoin history because it opened the floodgates for institutional hedge funds to allocate to crypto. Previously, uh, if you bought Bitcoin at a hedge fund, you were taking a career risk, right? If you were a portfolio manager and you bought Bitcoin and it didn't work out, that's a big career risk. If you were an analyst and you recommended to your PM to buy Bitcoin, that's a career risk. When Paul Tudor Jones said openly said that he's buying Bitcoin, you no longer had an excuse not to at least consider allocating to the asset class. I mean, I would argue we've seen that for years on the venture side, but Sequoia is the name that now that they are actively allocating to crypto, actively declaring themselves a crypto native firm, this opens the floodgates for every single VC firm in the entire world. They have no excuse not to allocate to this industry. Yeah, I mean, you sort of like uh, think about it this way, right? Sequoia has a privileged position in the venture world, right? If they want to get into it and they want to lead a deal, a founder is going to want to get money from the guys that backed, you know, Apple. Uh, and, and so for them to come into this asset class really tells you everything you need to know. Um, and so it really raises the stakes for every other venture firm that tries to compete with Sequoia in traditional venture to say, wait a minute, why are these guys going into crypto, right? And so again, it's super positive for the space. And and you almost have to wonder how many of their portfolio companies, right? Because they invest across the spectrum, like software as a service, um, you know, um, fintech, and how many of their portfolio companies 
want to get into crypto. And so I think that obviously from their vantage point, they probably saw a lot of their portfolio companies want to get into crypto, get smarter into crypto. And it's sort of an asset class that, again, as we continue to talk about this narrative, you it is hard to avoid. And, and I think you're seeing the top player, in my estimation, in the venture world come out very publicly um, saying that they want to invest behind this asset class. And, it, and importantly, it's, 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 I think it's, as you said, it's Web3, it's more Ethereum-based, it's more smart contracts. It's, it is a tech bet. It's not Bitcoin. And I think that is a very important distinction to what you just said about, around Paul Tudor Jones. Exactly. And on that point, for those who missed it, their uh, Twitter, uh, Sequoia literally changed their Twitter uh, bio to mainnet faucet. We helped the daring Biddle legendary DAOs, legendary DAOs from idea to token airdrops, LFG. We just hired a new editor in chief came over from the Wall Street Journal. He's been at the journal for eight years. He literally, when Mike was showing him <laughs> the Sequoia Twitter page, he literally thought it got hacked. He didn't, he, he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that Sequoia is actually putting LFG in their bio and, and leaning all the way into DAOs. So massive yeah. news. One, one other point on Sequoia there. Um, I don't know if you want to talk to like, they're uh, doing some stuff like moving to an RIA, which Andreessen did like an uh, I think a year ago, which uh, from my understanding basically unlocks their ability to invest in tokens. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. 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 And why is that so? Is that is that basically the reason why it's so important? I think so. I mean, it, essentially, like uh, I think that I, I don't know the exact rules. We can cover it in another episode, but it is an important milestone to unlock the ability to to custody tokens and invest in projects that are are, are token related. And so. Um, I mean, I, th I think as we discussed in the prior episode, a lot of these funds have been interested in crypto, but as they raise sort of like five, 10 year funds, a lot of their LP agreements might have not allowed them or the structure may have not allowed them to go into crypto. And and this is obviously requires the ability to invest in crypto requires um, some restructuring on sort of the legal side of things. So, yeah. Massive news. I would call this the Paul Tudor Jones of the venture side of things. Next big news, Santiago, just a big just a lot of market action, honestly. So let's give some context on what happened. Uh, about a month ago, November 7th, Bitcoin's trading around 67, 66K, right? It just had a little bit of run up. Things were going really well. Uh, three weeks later, November 28th, Bitcoin fell to 54K. So it fell from 66 to 54, pulled back up one day later, back up to 58K, then a massive fall to 45K, uh, some charts, even like 42, 43, 44K on December 4th. Now coming back up, I think we're around like 51, 52, 50K. A lot of market action the last 30 days. What's, what's, um, I, uh, and one other interesting thing here is Bitcoin and Solana, uh, fell like 25%, 20%. ETH sold off like 20%. But other assets like Luna actually went up nearly. 40%, right? Luna ripped higher 55 to 75 bucks hitting an all-time high. How are you interpreting what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like uh macro markets are pretty jittery. I think Bitcoin has moved in line with I mean, there's obviously concerns around the new variant Omicron and uh now obviously the the Chinese real estate um giant defaulting today. And so I think Bitcoin is more sensitive to those kind of movements. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I think Bitcoin is hard for me to understand how it trades. I mean, I think the it has a very high beta, I think, relative to the markets. And the macro environment is, is quite sensitive, I think, especially this time of year. I mean, I'm not a trader. I don't I don't interpret this as much. Um, 
But, uh, you know, there's also, you know, profit taking at the end of the year. December tends to be like a very weird kind of month for this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of funds might be in profit. And so they want to lock that in. Um, but it's interesting, the psychology of, of markets, you know, you, you look at the sentiment and, you know, when Bitcoin was at 66K, everyone's like, oh, definitely Bitcoin's going to 100K. I think if you look at open interest of options, like there's more open interest of Bitcoin hitting 100K than there is around like 70K or something. And so I think like there's a lot of excitement around that. And then it trades all the way down to 49 and 45 and people are saying, oh, man, it's going back to 30. And so it's it's very uh, and weekends. A lot of this price action happens on weekends where there's low volume. Uh, and so it's important to also understand, you know, a lot of these movements, especially on the weekends are I don't interpret I don't give a lot of credence to that. It's just sort of weekends tend to be very retail, perhaps sensitive um, kind of retail driven price actions. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think it, it, the other thing to note is the amount of liquidations happening also on the weekend and also during these private move, movements is, is, is quite large. Um, and so funding, one of the things that I look at a lot is funding rates, you know, anytime funding rates go, but you know, get pre, it, it really gives you an understanding of how much leverage there is in the system. And there was a fair amount of leverage going into 66 K. Um, and, and so you, you sort of saw an entire reset and wipe out of that and and you know these are healthy i think movements as, as painful as it may be for a lot of participants you know i think if we're uh you know a lot of times you, you, there can't be too much leverage in the system and, and there was a bit quite a bit going up to 66k so we're now back at a reset and who knows where we'll go from here yeah i mean my i think i have like a slightly uh different take or like uh my thought is slightly different here. Like the, I think the most interesting thing for me is like this narrative that we're starting to talk about, which is the sectorization of crypto, right? You could almost make the argument that Bitcoin uh, and blue chip DeFi have actually been in a bear market for like the last nine to 12 months. When you look at some of these charts um, and just to, I mean, to kind of extend that argument out a little bit, maybe not Bitcoin, but some of these blue chip assets are down like 90% relative to other things like L1s. And so a lot of people, I don't know, I'm just, there's, a, we always get the, the Twitter DMs, right? When's the bear market coming? And when I see things like BTC and ETH sell off 25% and Luna rip higher 40%, like in the last cycle, we never saw that. We never, never, never saw that. If something, if Bitcoin sold off 30%, the Luna was, well, Luna didn't exist, but all these other things were selling off 40 or 50%, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, now they're kind of breaking that trend. Uh, and the other, or I actually, so I'd get your take on that. Like, does this kind of further our narrative of the sectorization of crypto? Absolutely. No, I, I think, look, at the, the price action that we've been seeing over the last month of BTC against, uh, you know, alts, let's call them that, is in, including Ethereum, is nothing I've seen in the last 10 years that I've been investing in this space. The amount of strength that you've seen Ethereum really lead this rally when Bitcoin is going down and Ethereum is rallying. I mean, that sort of look, I mean, they're discrete data points um, and it's it's important not to read perhaps too much into that. But I think you've consistently seen Ethereum show a lot of strength around this like, um, you know, 4,000, 4,200 level, which is pretty strong. And Bitcoin just continue to go down. And so I think um, I do agree with you that there is. Again, my, my thesis has always been this space as it further matures and people wrap their heads around what are the different use cases that crypto enables. You know, Bitcoin is quite different than Ethereum. And the type of investor that invests in Bitcoin is quite different than Ethereum. And so, again, one is a tech bet. The other one is a macro hedge like gold, perhaps. And so they, these assets uh, will probably break their correlation. I mean, it's it's been super tightly correlated historically. But I think now 
And it started to happen earlier this year where this correlation that is so Bitcoin centric is moving. Uh, the second point, I definitely agree. If you look at DeFi, in my estimation, it's been in a bear market, right? Because ETH is the base pair. So if you look at it on an ETH um, chart, a lot of these assets, are, as you said, are down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%. Um, and, and so that to me is, I mean, I don't know what else you need. We talk about a bear market in 2017. A lot of these assets were down 80, 90%. You're there for a lot of these DeFi names. Right. I think the other interesting thing to look at, how many days is the bear, uh, the, uh, the cycle lasting, right? And this first cycle basically lasted for like 200 days. Second cycle lasted for 600 days. Uh, third cycle lasted for like a thousand days. And I'm talking days since the bottom. Uh, and this fourth, fourth cycle uh, has already passed a thousand days. So I think what we're looking at here is a combination of just an extension of cycles. Every cycle tends to last longer than the next, uh, as well as the sectorization of crypto. So it'll be interesting to, interesting to see how this one plays out. The, the, the last observation there I'll say is I think these markets are these, we're seeing these mini micro cycles, I call them, because there is a lot of strength of people buying into these dips. Um, I think it's perhaps easier on ramp. There are more, there are more market participants, there's more capital flowing into the space. And so I think, um, a lot of what we saw earlier this year was uh, institutional capital buying into these dips. Um, and so I, I just think that it, it's been interesting to see the compression of, of the number of days where like there's like sort of the amplitude of these curves of these cycles is sort of like compressing quite a, quite a bit where you see, you still see a lot of the volatility, but it's compressed in terms of like the, the amplitude of, of, of that cycle. Yeah. I mean, and, and really what that is, is just uh, global, global market cycle speeding up, right? You're not, it's not just in crypto you're seeing, that inequities and everything, everything else. So, That's true. Uh, let's get into ETHBTC, uh, and then we'll talk about some of the drama going on in the space. Uh, ETHBTC, uh, just to give some context on like on this chart, um, essentially ETHBTC in 2017 really ran up uh, to its all-time high, 0.15. Uh, fell back in 2018, came back up above 0.1, and had slowly fallen from 0.1 down to 0.025. Uh, and since kind of, I mean, the beginning of this cycle, like March of 2020, uh, ETH BTC has steadily risen, uh, started at 0.025. Uh, we're approaching 0.1, right? Why is this? I see this number all over the place, Santiago. I see it all over the place. Mm -hmm. ETH BTC ratio, people say it's so important. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on like, why does this ratio get so much airtime? Ethereum to BTC. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to this idea that, like, uh, we've always talked about, can Ethereum be something bigger than Bitcoin? And naturally, um, it touches on on how the how Ethereum and Bitcoin um, is sort of the, the two largest, uh, you know, crypto assets, if you will. Um, and, and it's just been interesting to observe. Um, you know, it is showing a lot of strength. Uh, it goes, again, touches on this idea that Ethereum is quite different than Bitcoin. And I think... You know, people in the Ethereum camp have always said it for a long time. I think this is just telling you more people are waking up to this idea that, you know, Ethereum um, necessarily shouldn't move in line and lockstep with Bitcoin. And, and Ethereum has a lot of activity. I, I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think Ethereum's already for Bitcoin. If you look at the number of applications as, as an ecosystem, as a network with network effects, I think Ethereum, I mean, has this sort of whole, think about how much Ethereum is powering today or a smart contract platform like Ethereum. You know, you have DeFi, you have NFTs. You have gaming um, and many other applications that are being built. And so in like a thriving ecosystem of developers, 
uh, of activity being built on top of Ethereum. And so naturally, you know, I think we always talk about Bitcoin being a store of value, like a non-sarmant store of value, meaning a digital gold. Okay, well, that's $8 trillion. Think about how big in Ethereum is a general smart contract computing platform that is, think about it as the settlement value layer of the internet. Okay, well, on a relative basis, what do you think is larger, the internet or gold? Like all the all the activity that the internet powers and the economic sort of value that is powered by the internet versus gold, which one do you think is, is, is larger? Commerce on the internet. <laughs> exactly. And, and all the other kind of efficiencies, if you were to like peg, I mean, the internet's vastly larger. I don't have a figure, but vastly larger than, than, than gold. And so for me, that's just, that's sort of what I look at as, yeah, I mean, Ethereum should be larger than Bitcoin uh, or Solano. But, and so I think like this is, this is part of the reason why a lot of people just look at this chart. Um, and, and certainly the, the strength of ETH versus Bitcoin as of late is, is pretty interesting. So I think it's just a function of more market. I mean, I was just last night talking to one of the larger traditional like hedge funds in the space moving very aggressively. And he was telling me, look, I initially, my allocation, I thought of it as Bitcoin and ETH. And it was very, it was like 80% Bitcoin, 20% ETH. And then today, in a matter of six months, in his crypto journey, holds zero Bitcoin. And this is one of the larger hedge funds in the world. Back, wait, 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 zero back Bitcoin. Up, back that up. Massive hedge fund in traditional space, moves into crypto, pushing really heavily, mm-hmm. probably buys Bitcoin early on. Now they own zero Bitcoin? Zero Bitcoin. Z- zero. Tell me more. Why? What's the thesis there? Because there's no reason for me to hold Bitcoin. And and I, I, I mean, look, I, I, I don't disagree with them. I, I, I personally hold zero Bitcoin. Really? And, I, and, and, and earlier this year, I said, there, there's really You sold no all of your Bitcoin earlier this year? All of my Bitcoin. And look, I, for, I think Bitcoin's- For, to push farther Ethereum. out on the risk spectrum or for Ethereum? No, for Ethereum. And then I said, look, I'm, I'm gonna figure out what else to do, but I'm very active investing in early stage stuff. But on the liquid side of things, I, I, I increasingly came to the conclusion that there was, at least for what I look at, there's no reason for me to hold Bitcoin. And, I'm, and this is the first time I'm probably staking this, but like I, 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 I share his sentiment. And I don't, and I think, just think about that now, as more and more traditional investors come into the space, I wonder if they're actually gonna deploy into Bitcoin as this other manager did, which is you kind of start in Bitcoin, then you rotate into some other stuff. Whereas you just go maybe direct to Ethereum. I, I, I think this is the first time ever that people are skipping Bitcoin actually. Uh, like a lot of the institutional managers that we speak with for the first time ever, I didn't think it would ever happen. Mike has been kind of predicting this for years. People just literally going straight into ETH uh, and then mm-hmm. pushing out farther onto the risk, uh, risk spectrum there. And the reason being, I th- they say that they missed the trade on, on Bitcoin as well, which I disagree with. But I also think that it's what you're talking about. They see Bitcoin as a store value, a hedge against inflation, whereas Ethereum is much more easily compared to things like, you know, it's the base of Web3, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I can't tell you, just to round this out, uh, the I don't think this is isolated things. I, I can corroborate that. I mean, I've talked to so many traditional tech funds, hedge funds and venture funds, and especially hedge funds that could easily allocate to Bitcoin and the hour-long conversations that I have with them about the space. They don't talk about Bitcoin, and that that is a dramatic shift in interest 
more centered around Ethereum or Solana or Terra or some of these smart contract platforms. Um, and so it's just more interesting for them. It's a, it's a tech bet. It's not, it's really just that. And if you're making a tech bet, I think you appreciate a smart contract like Ethereum or Solana and all the applications being built on top of that. And it's harder to see that for Bitcoin. Tell me more about this conversation with the fund manager. I'm pretty, uh, pretty intrigued by this. Outside of Ethereum, what else is their investment strategy? Are they doing uh, private deals, like uh, basically just venture investing? Are they pushing out into other L1s? Are they even looking at things like DAOs? Like, tell me more about what they're thinking and what kind of questions that they're asking. All of the above. I mean, they, I, I, I'm incredibly excited to see, you know, someone as successful in traditional markets push so, so aggressively into crypto. And, and I think, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly looking at Ethereum, certainly looking at like other L1, like Solana, looking at other managers in the space um, that have interesting strategies and, and also collecting NFTs. And so it really is a full, again, the full spectrum. And, um, you know, I, I wonder how many of those other traditional managers out there, I mean, I can't think of perhaps a more aggressive manager moving into the space. And it's super encouraging because they've sort of, established, as you said, there was a lot of career risk moving into this industry, um, you know, even a year ago. Now, increasingly, I think there's more career risk of not deploying into this asset class. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really a very comprehensive, broad-based kind of strategy of how do you capture the most amount of value and how do you play this space? And as you said, in sectorizations, he has a team that is dedicated to NFTs and 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 DeFi and and gaming and all these different applications and so it's super encouraging to see that yeah uh, one one last note on uh, you selling all your Bitcoin because that is uh, no small thing that you just shared with us uh, a lot yeah. of people basically try to push out on the risk spectrum in a bull market right you want to be in riskier and riskier assets in a bull market and people who try to time the market pull back at the end of bull markets into things like Bitcoin and ETH when they think the market yep. is going to kind of top out. Um, and the reason being Bitcoin and ETH tend to go down less than everything else in into the bear market. Do you like as we if, if we do go into a bear market next year or like, let's just say whenever we go into a bear market next, do you think Bitcoin still pulls back the least like Bitcoin pulls back 50 percent, ETH pulls back 60 percent or are you or do you push back on the on kind of the first principles of this even question, saying that we're not going to go into a bull market like we've seen in the past? A bear market. Um, yeah, look, I mean, market cycles are always a thing. Um, and I think it, it, I don't ascribe to this view that we're not ever going to go. To, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Bitcoin going from 60 to 30 in like this year. I mean, the volatility this year, like you could argue you've been in a bear market in, in two or three times this year. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I think there is a lot of support for um, Ethereum and something like Solana. Uh, but who knows? I mean, the, the, the thing that I always like to remind people when they come into the space is it is important to understand that crypto as a whole, as a category, has never gone through what you saw in 2008, a global financial crisis. You've never been it since the 08. We've, the markets have just been very funky. You have quantitative easing. It's like really weird times in this market. Like rates, every time you think can't go, keep going down, they come down. And so one of the worst trades I made in my career has been like going going super long rates. And this is when, like back in 2016, I mean, I was terribly wrong, right? Again, 
you're in a very weird macro environment. And so, again, I, we have to just sort of step back. This asset class is still very risky. You know, Bitcoin's a price discovery. Forget about Ethereum and some of the other stuff. And so it is it is it is a risk on asset class, full stop. And so I still believe that the beta that you're going to have of Ethereum and some of these other like, you know, earlier projects is going to be quite high because it's yeah. a risk on asset class. Um, so I don't care if you have a manager that's super bullish on, on Ethereum or some of these other things, if they can, if they, because it's liquid, if they feel pain in their more traditional piece of their business, which is equities and bonds or whatever, well, they're going to, they're going to probably, you know, offload their crypto position. And so it's still very niche positions in, in their portfolio. So I just think that, you know, probably Ethereum and everything else is going to move, have a higher beta relative to Bitcoin, meaning mm -hmm. it will, it will probably go down much more or, or at least relatively more. Yeah. Let's get into some drama, Santiago. Yes. This week. Um, never, never a shortage of drama in this week. Never a shortage of drama, but it felt like there's a lot of drama this week. Um, let's get into Sushi Swap specifically. Um, yep. Sushi, just 10 second context. Sushi is a uh, fork off of uh, Uniswap. Um, gained a lot of traction last uh, last year in DeFi summer. I think it was $700 million, $700 million uh, moved over from uh, Sushi Swap to Uniswap in like 48 hours. Uh, the project has since... Uh, actually did quite well for a little while there, uh, traded up to like 15, 16, 17 bucks, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it has actually since struggled recently. Uh, so there were a lot of folks, uh, zero X Maki, a lot of the, uh, kind of core devs, a lot of the, uh, kind of leaders of the project have actually moved on or been kicked out by the community. Uh, the price of sushi is down to like, I don't know what is that today? Five, six, five, six bucks. Uh, I haven't looked in like two days. Traded down like 60, 70% here. This past week, there was a lot of drama around one of the leaders, Joseph DeLong, left Sushi. What happened here, Santiago? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the full particulars because I, I'm not privy to internal conversations. Uh, obviously, Rec News reported some stuff that, um, you know, I, I don't know how much of that is, is true, but. Uh, there's certainly been a shakeup. I mean, Maki left the project. Maki, which is, uh, you know, Chef Nomi to fork the Uniswap contract and then uh, sort of rug pulled, if you will. And then Maki stepped in and he was really the figurehead of this protocol. And and then other contributors kind of um, came on. And, um, you know, I think they, they for for a while, they felt like they were doing not just copying Uniswap, but they were actually pushing. And I think still think that there is a lot of innovation there that is not just me too and copying. Uh, you know, you have Trident, you have Kashi, you have all these different components of, of what they're trying to do. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, Joseph was a CTO. He stepped down most recently. I think there was a lot of controversy around, you know, uh, sort of power struggles. And, you know, the point that I'll make here is, it's sort of interesting because it was operated, at least in my understanding, as initially as a as a community based project, a DAO, if you will. Well, I don't know how much of a DAO, but a community based project. Um, the implementation of that felt more like there was all these sort of factions within Sushi. You know, you had Maki, and then you had uh, a few other developers, and so everyone kind of contributing, um, and. And then there was sort of a corporation that was a company that got established. And this was like Joseph and a few other folks. 
Um, two, you're going to have more of a front-facing kind of entity behind what is sushi, right? If you want to sign a contract, if you want to hire an accountant, if you like, you have to have sometimes like, you know, where the digital world meets the meat space, you have to have an entity still. Um, and so, yeah, it was just interesting. It's been interesting. It sort of poses the question, like, what is the future of these community-based projects? Like, uh, you know, it's chaotic. People can move in and out. How do you manage funds? The amount of transparency is something that was put into question. Like, you know, how are people spending this money? How are people being paid? Um, you know, Joseph, I think, raised the question, like, look, he felt that he was not properly compensated and other members of the team felt the same way. Uh, so again, you know, and then the community pushed back and said, hey, well, we don't have a lot of insight into all, any of this stuff. You know, there's, and sort of, it, in my interactions, the thing I'll say is, it, it'd be interesting to observe, we talk about DAOs as the future of kind of how this space is going to move. Decentralized autonomous organizations are super sexy and exciting because anyone can come in and create a DAO. But how do you actually manage a DAO and operate the DAO is something that is interesting because it's it's very, very hard to coordinate these decision-making things in these sort of chaotic networks. Whereas it's much easier to do it in a hierarchy, right? If you have a CEO, if you have, you know, VPs and executive directors and all this stuff, you know, it's very clearly defined. Um, so um, I don't think it's the end of Sushi. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued. There was a proposal by... You know, ARCA, which is a fund in this space, is kind of activist and, and dialectic, which is another fund run run by Reinser. They too banded together to put a proposal to kind of put in a framework of how this organization should be restructured, if you will. I was pretty intrigued by Sushi going into this. As you say that, the thing that comes to mind is, of course, this is happening. This happens to startups. <laughs> We're talking about compensation issues we're talking about people different groups forming inside of a company we're talking about people fighting inside of a company because they think that not the other team is not doing enough work right this is stuff that happens all the time in all startups across the world right and i think actually the narrative uh to talk about here and like what we're seeing is actually the downside of building in public with DAOs, which is Blockworks has been running for over three and a half years, right? We're going on four years here. If every single time Mike and I had to make a decision or every single time Mike and I disagreed on something, our shit was aired out in public, I don't think Blockworks would be where it's at right now. If every decision was scrutinized by the community, we're talking about hiring, we're, we're going to more than double the team next year. If every single one of those hiring decisions was scrutinized and then once they accepted an offer, the, their compensation was scrutinized, what a nightmare that would be. And yeah. I think you're starting to see some of the, the shit get aired out in public. There was some stuff with MakerDAO and Rune a couple of weeks ago, which was really fascinating to watch. It almost reads like a soap drama, uh, but you can see all the internals and the guts of a startup getting spilled out in public. And so I think... Uh, what we're looking at right now is just the problem with governance, uh, 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 you know, when something is built in public. Absolutely. Building in public is, is really, really hard. And you get scrutinized. The community loves you when price number go up anytime the market trades down. I mean, you get a lot of criticism. And I sympathize with founders because it's super, super hard. Kane has one of the best tweets out there. And he, I think he has pinned to his profile. Kane Warwick is the founder of Synthetics. He says, if you have it as a, as a founder in crypto, if you haven't been called a scammer, a fraud, 
then you haven't built long enough in the space. And I think it's so true because it is very hard. The community expects a lot. And I've been of the, I don't know what the answer is. You almost are left wondering, like, how should we think about, do, should you decentralize and should you be totally transparent and, and let the community run what? Because at the end of the day, my view is you just have to build the best product. And in order to build the best product, there needs to be, there needs to be some, we talk about this benevolent dictator concept, which is you need to have a leader. You know, I think, I think communities are built because the leaders inspire people to come and build. Maki was a leader. I, I have a lot of respect for Maki. I think he did an extremely good job. He's now moved on to Tokamak. He's going to another project soon, which is super exciting. Um, like at the end of the day, you need to have leaders inspire. And so to think that that's not going to be the case, then it's sort of like these DAOs are not going to go anywhere. These community-based projects without a strong leader and team to build really good products, not going to go anywhere. They're not going to be able to compete against maybe, I hate to say it, more centralized organizations that could perhaps decentralize over time. DAOs are amazing. In a, I'm just going to preface this by saying I am incredibly bullish on DAOs. I'm very, very excited. I love, like I had an amazing conversation with Cooper Turley on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Just really, really, really excited. These things, DAOs will be the new institutions. DAOs, we are going to see some catastrophic failures of DAOs in a bear market. Bull market, everything works. Community-led, Sounds so nice. In a bear market, you need a leader, right, to take over and command the ship. And there's a reason that military uh, governance is structured how it is, right? Because it's uh, they're operating in a war zone. And in a war zone, aka a bear market, you need a commander to come in and tell the troops where to go. Uh, you can't be really soft and, you know, everyone's voting on everything all the time. So, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's something that I'm looking at in this bear market is like, how do these DAOs perform? This is a narrative that we should keep in the back of our mind. As I would distill it is the, the, how practical do we want to be in crypto? Because we, there's no shortage of ideals. There's a lot of idealism. There's a lot of theory. There's a lot of, I want this to be in this perfect wand. You wave a wand and you say it's totally decentralized. And then you wonder how practical should we be around this stuff? Because at the end of the day, we want crypto to be the de facto operating standard of the internet and how we operate and business is the same as the internet took over. In order to get there, I think, I think we need, you know, we don't need to reinvent everything. And there are certain things in organizational structures and how you run a company and a community that, that can be borrowed from web two, and not yeah. everything should be reinvented. This reminds me that, so Andre, uh, Andre from, uh, uh, urine, um, um, had, the, had this great tweet, time to retire decentralized finance. Time to retire DeFi. We aren't decentralized. The old guard will keep trying to use it as their attack vector. Open finance or Web3 finance is probably most accurate. And I think it's similar to what, you know, Kane is saying. And just being brutally honest, right? And I, my takeaway from this tweet is kind of what we're talking about. My thesis on a lot of this stuff, and I know there are a lot of folks who will disagree with this, but like not everything has to be decentralized. Um, you have to decentralize the base layer. Money... And store of value has to be decentralized in my mind. Uh, and as you go up the value, so like Bitcoin, Bitcoin has to be stay incredibly decentralized. As you go up the value stack to something like uh, a layer one, like ETH, uh, Solana should get more decentralized. ETH should should continue to get more decentralized. Like the layer ones should remain decentralized. Layer twos should also be decentralized, but don't need to be as decentralized as a layer one. 
I am not convinced that a game... I'm not convinced that the new Halo or the new Call of Duty needs to be decentralized. And I'm sure I'll get pushback for that, but like I you you need the you need the data layer. You need the L1 to be decentralized. You don't need every single company in crypto or every single organization in crypto doesn't need to be a DAO. Uh you you really just don't need that. And that's my thesis on this. Yeah. So I think some of the sushi stuff, I think this is what we're starting to see play play out. We're in the early days of this. Yeah, absolutely. A lot to talk about there, but um, yeah, it's it's certainly something to observe. And Sushi will be a good precedent for, I think, a lot of, and a blueprint for a lot of these DAOs. Yeah. I think one of the last things I want to get your take on, I do have to jump to this. Uh, I have a flight coming up. I have to jump in a second. Is uh, ZK Rollups. I've actually just been really surprised by how quickly they seem to be coming. It really does feel like some other L1s moving fast, Avalanche, Solana, et cetera basically kick the the, uh, the ETH community into high gear, uh, what feels like maybe for the first time ever. And the ZK rollups are coming much faster than people realize. Matter Labs raised 50 million for ZK Sync. Starkware is obviously moving quite quickly. Can you actually just explain these rollups and like explain around ZK rollups versus like optimistic rollups and just like, what, what are we seeing here, Santiago, as someone who's really deep into the angel side of things and yeah, but what I'll say is, uh, I mean, because obviously this is a whole discussion, but we've, so Vitalik's been talking about scalability since day one. Um, optimistic rollups are just more practical implementations of, of and more feasible in today's environment. ZK rollups are more ambitious, more theoretical, at least now, but do offer a path to, so, so as you see today, like obviously a lot of the implementations like Optimism and Arbitrum are using optimistic rollups um, as sort of as we think about current L2s. Um, but they're already, I think, thinking about ZK rollups because at some point you're going to have a limitation to how much transact, like if Ethereum becomes the de facto internet layer, the you know, value layer of the internet, well, uh, we cannot, optimistic rollups will not be enough to support that. So what comes next is ZK rollups, at least in, in the current purview of like the smartest people I've, I've talked to about this stuff in, in relation to scaling are thinking, look, optimistic rollups are not going to be enough. You sort of need to start investing and in, in looking into ZK rollups. Even even the team at Arbitrum, you know, uh, that I'm an investor in, like, they're thinking about this stuff, right? Because they know that at some point there will be a limitation to optimistic rollups. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting to see the the research there. I mean, Starkware. And and why is that? Why is there a limit? Why is there like a, a limit on optimistic rollups? That's a good question. Uh, perhaps more like we can invite like Steven um, yeah, from Arbitrum. Um, and so generally, I, I don't want to give an off the cuff answer that is not like technically like very comprehensive, uh, for our viewers, but, um, uh, but yeah, like there's a lot of companies. So you talk about like Matic bought or, or like, what was it? Uh, Hermes or I forget the name of, of, of the company yeah. that they acquired. Um, you have obviously Starkware, you have scroll, which is like a, a China based team doing a lot of progress there. And so it's it's quite exciting. Um, it's a, it's a couple of years out, is my estimation. But this type of research, I mean, you have to remember that optimistic rollup. I mean, the amount of research, like Arbitrum, for instance, has been looking at this stuff since early days of Ethereum. So these things take a lot, a lot of time. But they're one of the more promising kind of research areas um, as it relates to scalability and how you know these networks can can grow. Yeah. Does the speed at which these rollups are uh, getting launched and shipped does that impact your view on how other L ones get adopted? Um, yes. Yep. Like I know you, you really, you really like Solana. Like, does this impact, do, is this, how, how bad is this for Solana? 
I don't think it's necessarily bad. You know, I, I just think it's a, it offers, um, so a lot of what we've seen recently is the ability to move funds from an exchange, which is a primary on-ramp of, of users and funds into the space directly into an L2, uh, which is important because a lot of these L2s, mind you, um, give you the same benefit of all the different applications in Ethereum. For the most part, a lot of projects that are built in L1 can deploy easily in an L2, like Arbitrum. And then, um, you know, if you if you have funds in an exchange and you can directly withdraw to an L2 like Arbitrum and start using this sort of DeFi ecosystem there, that's pretty powerful. Uh, and I think that simple ability to, I, I've been really focused on like, can you, how easy is it for normal users to withdraw from an exchange directly into an L2? And I think that's one of the more interesting developments that happened recently. Uh, you know, first Matic or Polygon, I'd say, and now Arbitrum and Optimism. Uh, and so I think it, on the margin, yeah, you, you know, you see more, perhaps more withdrawals going directly to an L2 versus perhaps a Solana. But I still continue to believe that a lot of the users in Solana are coming from FTX and, you know, that sort of like side of the house. And so I don't, again, I'll hold to the view. I don't think this is zero sum and it's not, uh, it's not, um, it doesn't subtract from something like Solana. Uh, that's a good take. L2 improvements are not zero sum. I like that. Um, all right. If I don't leave in like two minutes, I'm going to be late for this flight. So the last thing I wanted to uh, bring up with you is I watched 14 Peaks. Amazing movie. All right. I have been completely hooked on uh, climbing documentaries. I watched Meru, uh, Free Solo. Mm -hmm. uh, I started The Alpinist last night. Uh, there's a quick yeah. one on YouTube called La Dura Dura uh, about mm -hmm. a... Uh, really uh, it's a really amazing short film how incredible are these uh are these climbing documentaries oh they're the best there's so many really good books in a thin air by john krakow uh buried in the sky about one of the worst accidents in k2 i, I tweeted about this i'm a huge huge i've climbed kilimanjaro i've thought about climbing other big mountains um it is fascinating uh i mean just the endurance the mental i've always said i've always believed like doing these type of high endurance sports marathons triathlons i like to do a few of these. like it teaches you so much about like the amount of pain that you cope climbing above eight thousand meters which is the death zone where your body just starts shutting down is incredible and you know i mean we certainly talk about coping with pain and crypto bear markets and the volatility in the space i think it just a documentary like this puts a lot of things into perspective um but for anyone that hasn't seen it it's on netflix it's an incredible incredible this guy just broke all kinds of mountaineering, mountaineering records of climbing the 14 peaks above 8,000 meters, which is at that zone, um, in Pakistan, Tibet, China, Nepal, and India in a matter of six months and six days. People have tried to do this in their entire mountaineering hiking careers, and they haven't been able to do this. This guy did it in six months. Unbelievable. 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 Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. So we've got... The book list is uh, now wanting. The uh, documentary list is 14 Peaks. We will keep adding to this. Santiago, another crazy sure. week in crypto. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing Thanks. what next week beholds. Uh, and until then, my friend, I will yeah. talk to you soon. Awesome. Great to be here and good, uh, have a safe flight. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone.